Where do you get your strength? Is it lifting weights? Or maybe it's running marathons. Find the right way to get strong by letting God meet your deepest need. Hey folks, it's Karen G. from the Tower Hill Communications team. Thanks for listening in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this podcast gives you inspiration. And we'd love if you share this with someone that you know so that they'll feel inspired too. Join us now for chapter 8 in our sermon series called The Story, which covers the Bible chapter by chapter in a continuous story form. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason Tucker right now. Well, we are in the story, and we've been here for a few weeks. That seems, that seems kind of loud to me. I don't want to blow everybody out. No, it's, it's like a rainy day. I want to keep you awake. But. So we're in the story, and um, last week we were talking, uh, well, actually the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about what God has been building with his people, how he created this nation uh, from one person, from Abraham, and, and how he's developed that nation. He freed them from slavery, and now they, I mean, they're wandering in the wilderness. Now they have the promised land. And the whole time, he's been trying to show them that if your heart's right, your life's going to be right. I feel like that's something maybe we all could, could use. If your heart's right, your life is going to be right. In other words, I want you, my children, to show the world what it looks like to live in a right heart with me. To live in a face-to-face, connected relationship with me. And this is what it looks like. It looks like these kind of commandments. Here's the framework around how we're supposed to live our lives. And you're going to show the world what it looks like. Because in the end, I'm going to bless the world through what I am teaching to you. And so now they've, they've been in the promised man. I mean, uh, promised man. Promised land. They've unpacked their boxes. The moving trucks have all left. They are residents of the promised land. And what happens when you're residents of the promised land, or let's just say you're experiencing a really good time in your life, you tend to forget about God a little bit, just a little bit, if you're honest. Like when you're in crisis, you're like, speak, O Lord, I sit at your feet. (laughs) Even if you're not religious at all, you're like, okay, for the God who may be there, I devote my life to you, you know. You get really serious. And then, and then things go good. You get out of the crisis, and then you're just like, I'm walking on sunshine, you know. And you kind of forget about God, but the, the second you start forgetting about God, things start to unravel every single time. But this is where we're going in today's installment, this chapter of the story about God being the rescuer. One way that God tried to combat this tendency that we have is to teach his people, this is how you have a right heart every single day. Pray this prayer. So Deuteronomy 6.5, known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And they were taught every day, this is the prayer that you pray. And to this day, many of our Jewish brothers and sisters, they pray this prayer every day. This is the prayer that everyone would have known, which is why Jesus quotes it When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He actually quotes this Shema, and then he adds to it, and love your neighbor as yourself. So they all knew what he was talking about when he spoke the Shema. 
And then Joshua last week, reminding everybody, hey, now that we're victorious, don't forget about God. This is what he said. This is from last week's sermon. Joshua 23, be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. In other words, don't just become the new pagans now that you are good, but remember God. Show the world what your relationship looks like in real time. And then, as the book of Judges tells us, it didn't last very long. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Don't you kind of feel like this is, uh, maybe it was a little bit prophetic to our situation here in the American church, is that generationally, less and less people go to church. Generationally, less and less kids have, would say that they have a relationship with God. In fact, my kids' generation, Generation Z, 18 and under, are twice as likely as adults to self-declare as atheists. Why is that? Well, it's a bad generational handoff. We have not taught them the ways. And this isn't a guilt trip. I'm just like, this is a place where the church needs to step in. Like, we can help you with that. We can help this generation with that. We want to be part of the solution, not part of the ongoing problem. But then what happens is when you start forgetting about God, things don't go well. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, Baal was a pagan god, very common in the time of the Old Testament, and it was usually known as a fertility god or god of sort of crops and abundance. They had this whole kind of like laundry list of things this god covered. I think it was sort of like the miscellaneous god, like anything we need to pray, like, okay, just pray to that god. And they had like little idols, little statues of them everywhere. And uh, the Israelites quickly forgot and they went and started doing everything that was basically warned they shouldn't do. And then God's like, if you do that, you're going to have repercussions because that's not what it looks like to live in a relationship with me. And then God does exactly what he says. Verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. I felt like uh, this morning, as I was reading this scripture, I felt God kind of saying to me, I don't know if this applies to you, but he's saying to me, um, is that when you... When the hand of the Lord is against you to defeat you, I'm glad my God does what he says he's going to do. I don't always like it. I'm glad God's consistent. Sometimes I don't like that consistency. So they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So judges. Now when we think of judges, we think of like judges, judges, like with robes and gavels and they're deciding right from wrong and they're kind of doling out punishment but that's not what this word means this word means something more like William Wallace Braveheart all right this means a, a military leader that would rise up from the people to help them defeat their enemies and so God would do this thing where he would keep intervening and sending them rescuers or judges to get them out of trouble 
this is the place I always point to, and this might be important for some of you, because sometimes we think that God's grace is really like New Testament stuff, and we look back at the Old Testament, and we're like, yeah, that's the angry God. We don't, I'd just rather talk about Jesus. He's going to give me a hug, and we're going to be good. But I see God's grace and mercy here in the book of Judges. If anybody asks you, where is it in the Old Testament, say, read the book of Judges. Why do I say that? Because God relentlessly keeps rescuing in spite of ourselves out of his great mercy. There's something that, and I think this applies to our lives too, that the, the people are going through called, that I like to call the sin cycle. So it goes something like this. God rescues me. And things are good. Walking on sunshine. I forget about God. And I sin. And then my sin leads to my own suffering. And then I cry out to God, where are you? God rescues me. I forget about God. I sin. I suffer. Where are you, God? God rescues me. This is the sin cycle. This is what you and I have experienced. I won't speak for you. Experienced it a lot. But this is exactly what God's people are going through. So every time God would rescue them, even in spite of themselves. Do you know what I think it's like? I think at this point in the story, it's like when my dad tried to teach me how to ride a bike. I remember, and by the way, it didn't look that perfect. <laughs> Can I have that, Dad? I'm sorry, that was messed up. But, but <laughs> Anyway, so it was on my seventh birthday. Anybody who knows me knows there's a whole lot of baggage there. So the, uh, I remember my seventh birthday, I get a bike, and we're out in the park, and it's my birthday, and my dad's trying to teach me how to ride it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to put you on this bike, and I'm going to push you, but make sure you don't slow down because you're nervous. Because if you stop pedaling, you're going to go, you're going to fall right over. Got it, Dad. Got it. Okay, leave me alone. Let me get my new bike. So there we go. We push me. I'm riding, riding, riding. I freak out. I stop pedaling. You know, I, I eat it. You know, I'm like, dust myself off, pretend like that didn't happen because it's what he just said would happen. Then he comes over. He's like, dude, what are you... What did I just tell you? Oh, no, I, I got it, I got it. Get back on the bike. Push me. Go too slow. Eat it. I, that was a slow study, okay? Don't judge me. So I feel like, though, there's something in here that's kind of like what God's doing with his people during this time. He's saying, look, I've... I, I took care of you in the wilderness. First of all, I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. I've took, taken care of you in the wilderness. I've given you the promised land. Now it's time for you to learn to ride the bike by yourself. We're taking the training wheels off, and you have to be able to do this. You have to be able to live this life with me on your own. Now, I'm going to be right here. Now, I'm telling you, don't forget about me. Don't turn from the rider to the left, right? Don't do all those things, and you'll stay on your bike, and this will work out. And then God's people fall. He sends a rescuer or a judge, helps him back up on the bike, says, now, don't do that anymore. You see what happened? Oh, yes, we got it. Back on, repeat. I feel like there's something like that spiritually going on with his people right now during the time of judges. So we get to the judges, and there's a whole list of them. Here are a few. We had Othniel and Ehud. There's this really, um, if you want to show your kids, like a really gross, kind of cool story, read the story of Ehud. There's like, like, 
Someone gets stabbed and they're so fat that like the sword, anyway. It's a really random, strange uh, story, but it's fun to tell kids. So, as are many of the stories in the judges. Uh, and then Deborah is a judge. Now listen, when anybody asks me what I think about women in ministry, I say, take it up with, I mean, that's God's idea from the beginning. Deborah is a judge, is a rescuer, a military rescuer. Wow, there weren't cheers from the women? Like, let's go! Yeah. And then today we're going to land a little bit on talking about Gideon and Samson. Let's start with Gideon. So an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon to tell him he is the next judge who's going to save his people. What was going on was uh, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Midianites who would basically just come and steal everything they had. So the Israelites would work really hard. They'd have a crop. They'd raise it. Midianites would come. They'd see, oh, what a great crop. And they'd take everything and go on their way. Like, and there was nobody to stand up to them. So the people are crying out to God. And God's idea is to raise up Gideon. So here's how it goes. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, let's unpack a couple of things because we might not instinctively know what a threshing floor is or what it looks like. Let me show you. This is the idea of the threshing floor is that it's the place where you would separate the grain from the outer husk of wheat, for example, in order that you can use it. And it required some force. What they do is they stick a big pole in the middle. They'd attach some oxen to it, and they let the oxen trample on all of the grain to separate the husk from the seed. That was called threshing, right? That was the threshing floor. So you need this big slab and room to hook up the animals to make that happen. But, it's, but we learn instantly that that's not where Gideon is. He's actually in a wine press, a converted wine press that would look something like that. So all the grapes would go down that hole and they would smash it. So he's doing it there. Why? Because he's scared of the Midianites seeing, oh, threshing floor time, look at the crop for us. So he's hiding out. The angel just calls him, hey, brave, mighty warrior. He's actually not at all. He's very scared and he's hiding in the corner so that he won't be found. They're not fighting against the Midianites. They're hiding from them. This is my favorite part, is his response, Gideon's response, verse 15. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So in other words, hey God, listen, great idea, rescue us. I am a classic weakling, and I come from a long line of weaklings. But isn't this how God, and I think some of you today need to hear this, God speaks into who you really are, not who you think you are. God speaks into what you're capable of, who he's designed you to be, not who you've boxed yourself in to be. This is one of those moments where he knows Gideon has it in him, Gideon not quite so much. It also turns out Gideon's a, a tad superstitious, and he's nervous about getting it wrong. 
Like, if I'm going to go into battle, I want to make sure God's really got my back, so I'm going to double check. So he puts God to a test, which, generally speaking, not a great idea. But he does it. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you, as you said. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, how many of you have put God to similar, God, if this is true, just give me a sign. Just show me, you know, this traffic light's going to turn yellow right now. Okay, okay, it's you, right? Like, we come up with all sorts of things that we're looking for. So, you know, I can't be too hard on Gideon. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Right? Awesome. But he doesn't stop there. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time the fleece, let, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. So you know what he's thinking. He's like, well, it would be easy for the fleece to gather dew and for it to be dry. So let's, let's reverse that. And you want, this is like, I, I would be so bad at God's job. I just be like, I am super annoyed with you. Let's go on to somebody else. This is like, I sent an angel to you. That wasn't enough. Like, you got a magic eight ball. This thing, Meh. should I do it, God? Meh. It is decidedly so. Well, let's make sure. Meh. Let's. But God does it. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So, so far, it's shaping up that Gideon's the worst judge ever. So I'm a weakling from a line of weaklings, and, uh, and I don't believe what you're going to say, so let's test it out with these little projects I have you do. You see, Gideon was operating from a place of fear instead of faith, and what he needed to learn was where his strength came from. Gideon felt he was too weak, and so he had a hard time trusting in God because he was trusting on his own strength. So I'm just not strong enough to do what you're calling me to do. That's why he had a hard time trusting. Incidentally, this is not the first time where God has showed up on the threshing floor in the Old Testament. I think this is worth noting. In the Old Testament, we get, we get Ruth, David, prophets of God, and Gideon. It's a place where God meets and calls them to something, or provides for them. And I started thinking about, like, why the threshing floor? And I think it is meant to be a place that we recognize spiritually. It's the place where God's provision meets our deepest need. What do I mean? So if you're living in an agrarian society, what you get in the harvest is your deepest need. That's what keeps you alive. And you don't know until you've harvested if you're going to be okay. That's when you know you're going to have enough food to survive. And I think spiritually, that's kind of how it is with our lives. God shows up on the threshing floor, that place where his provision meets our deepest needs. So then we move, so Gideon does it, he rescues these people, and then we get the sin cycle. So they, they're feeling great, they've been rescued, they forget about God, they sin, they start to suffer again, they cry out to God. 
God raises another judge who is the polar opposite of Gideon. This is Samson, who had no problem knowing that he was strong. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Interesting situation. What the heck's a Nazarite? Like we have, we don't know what that means. Why is the thing with the haircut? Like why is that bad? So let's unpack it real quick. A Nazarite is somebody in the Old Testament who would make a special vow to God and they would be set apart to accomplish that vow. And while they took that vow, there were some rules. Don't drink wine or fermented drink. Don't cut your hair. And don't touch anything that defiles you. Like, for example, like a dead body or something. You're not supposed to come into contact with that. It was the old, like, cleanliness law rules of the Old Testament. So that's why it was a big deal that he got the haircut. Because he was a Nazarite from the womb. That was unusual. Usually a Nazarite would come and say, I'm ready to make my Nazarite vow. He didn't have that. He was that from the womb. And so it was a big deal for him to cut his hair before the vow was fulfilled. Well, Samson had the op opposite problem of Gideon. I remember this story. If you go to the next slide, this is also great for the kids. Where Samson was so strong, he slayed a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. Like, I know, like, that's disgusting, but a great story for the kids. Anyway, <laughs> Samson had no problem believing in his own strength, which was also a problem. Samson felt he was too strong and had a hard time trusting God because he didn't always see the need to. And so both need to learn the same lesson. Gideon had to trust that strength is from God, and Samson had to learn, had to trust that strength is from God. And he does, and his final act in his story is really dramatic and awesome, how he saves the day and saves God's people. But I find this really interesting that all throughout these stories, God's dropping Easter eggs. You know what I'm saying? Like in the movies. But there's a reason they call them Easter eggs. They are secret signs that point to Jesus, to the resurrection, to Easter. God is dropping them everywhere. You're going to have a son. I'm going to set him aside for ministry. How many times have we seen that through scripture? What else does he say? I think he drops some major Easter eggs in the whole idea of the threshing floor with these two judges. Here's what I mean. When a Nazarite completes their vow, they do two things. They drink wine and they eat unleavened bread to celebrate the fulfillment of the vow. Sounds a lot to me like receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ, communion. What's more with Gideon is that God meets him on the threshing floor. But it's not a threshing floor, it's a converted wine press. Bread, wine, I'm seeing it again. Another Easter egg that's saying that 
We're pointing to Jesus. The story isn't over yet, and it's not going to be complete until Jesus comes and makes things complete. But what I'm showing you is I'm teaching you some important lessons here. I'm teaching you that your strength does not come from yourself. You are not capable of rescuing yourself. You have to learn the lesson that sin is a big problem, and it's going to keep coming up until that problem is remedied fully and finally in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to drop little Easter eggs along the way. The threshing floor where God's provision meets our deepest need it is the place where bread and wine intersect and the vow of faith is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So like Gideon and Samson, I think that's a live lesson for us to learn is we have to learn to trust that our strength is from God. I want to ask you something this morning to kind of tie this together and land it in your life. Where is your threshing floor today? Maybe you recognize exactly where you are in that cycle. Where is that place where God needs to meet your deepest need? I want to encourage you today. I believe he's already there on the threshing floor of your life. It's just a matter of letting go and receiving it. My prayer is that we all, as we lean into Thanksgiving this week, we would all be so thankful for the grace and mercy we receive from God over and over and over again. This is a chapter in your story. Amen. As the band comes back up, let me offer this prayer for us. Oh God, I pray that you give us the strength that only comes from you to tackle the issues, the challenges in our lives. We thank you for your grace and mercy, and I pray that our lives reflect people who are grateful, people who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We also ask that you show up in a big way in those areas that we are looking for you on the threshing floor. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.